Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Grace and Race, uh, night two. We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Community Free Church. And for those of you who are here with us in the room and those who are watching online, welcome. Uh, we're glad that we didn't drive you away with session one. You guys are all back. These are all faces that were here before. So it's great to see you all. Um, as we move into the second night of our conversation, I wanted to just briefly recap where we were uh, in night number one so that we can bring all of that up to where we're going to start the discussion this evening. So let me just give a quick uh, recap and then we'll pray and hop right in here this evening. So during our first night, uh, we heard from both David, who's another pastor here at the church, and the Harveys, Lukeman, and Carolina. So David opened up our conversation and spoke about how we as Christians ought to engage in a conversation about race with the heart and posture of Jesus Christ, how we ought to engage with care and compassion for those who have suffered injustice, and how we also should engage with care and compassion with those with whom we disagree in conversation, even with difficult discussions like race. And then we heard from the Harveys about their experience of growing up in America as minorities and their life together and raising three boys and what that has meant uh, for them. And so to both of you, thank you for sharing with us last week. I've thought about what you have all said since then, and uh, you all were honest and vulnerable about your experiences and about sharing openly the truth of God's word, and so we're thankful for you three. Well, as we talked on our panels uh, in night one, there was a number of different things that were discussed, and there was a number of questions that were sent in. So if your question didn't get answered last week during night one, don't worry. We have a whole sheet full of questions that we are excited to get to that are left over from night one. Um, and I would encourage you at any point tonight, if you have a question, text that number that's on the screens here, and we will get to that as best we can. We're going to try to answer as many of those as we can. But as we talked uh, on our panels, one thing that we kept coming back to and trying to get around our heads around was an agreed upon definition of what racism is from the Bible. And as we talked, there was a synthesis that was kind of reached. And as we talked, we, we came back to this idea that to define racism, we first have to understand something about how God created mankind, how God created humanity. And in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read that God created Adam and Eve, male and female, in his image, in the image of God. And now that could mean, that does mean a number of different things, but at its most foundational level, that means that all of us as human beings, no matter what the color of our skin is, we are all created in a way that we are elevated from all of God's other creation and given inherent dignity and value and worth such that we actually reflect God's glory and beauty to one another. And so when we come to a definition of what racism is, after understanding what the image of God means, this is what we kind of came to on our, on our panel. The racism is any devaluing of another person made in the image of God on the basis of race. Let me say that again. Racism is any devaluing of another person made in the image of God on the basis of race. 
And as we talked in our, in our panels, that, that definition allows us to speak in different categories that oftentimes in our culture, as we observe, people talk past one another with the way they talk about race. So in defining racism that way, we can account for the ways in which person to person there might be racism. So person A exhibits prejudice, racism against person B. They clearly devalue the image of God in that person on the basis of race by what they think or by what they say or by what they do. But that definition also allows us to look at the ways that sinful human hearts corrupt the the systems or institutions that they create as human beings and the ways in which a system or institution might devalue the image of God in another person. And so with all of that said, with all of that behind us, as we come to, to, to this night, night number two, the big question that we are going to be wrestling with, if I could boil it all down to something, is how ought we as the church of Jesus Christ to respond to the reality of racism, both in the church and in America today? What should we do about it? How should we respond? How should we think and pray and feel about this? And so as we move towards that, I would encourage you, as we hear from Mike Grenier and Tony give talks tonight, and as we listen to these panel discussions, as you ask your questions, I pray that the Lord would lead us in answering those big questions of how we ought to respond and that we would listen to his spirit in humility together as a church. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in, and Mike Grenier is going to come and speak to us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we ask tonight that you would give us wisdom. Father, we ask for your grace again as we enter into a difficult conversation about hard things and ways in which your good creation has been corrupted by our sin, by the way that we as human beings have devalued other people who are made in your image, in your likeness, to display your beauty. Father, forgive us. Help us to enter this conversation again with humility. And Lord, may you teach us and help us to become, as a church, more like Jesus Christ. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. All right. Very glad to be here with you tonight. Very glad to get to open the scriptures with you. I'm, I'm geeking out a little bit because we get to talk about one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of Mark, uh, from Mark uh, chapter 12. It's one of those passages that just has wonders to discover in it that just seem, seem to never have a bottom. <laughs> Just, I just love, love Mark 12, 13 through 17. So my name is Mike Grenier. I'm one of the, the pastor elders here at Community. Um, again, it's just wonderful to be here with you and talk about this subject as a family together. Um, to kick off our evening, uh, we're going to be talking through Mark 12. I've titled this exposition of Mark 12, um, Politics and Polarization, A Different Way. So you might be asking yourself, why... Why are we talking about politics tonight? This is a night about grace and race. Is there anything more opposite to, to grace than politics in our day? Um, so when we're, why are we talking about this tonight? I've had the same question, but here's why. We, your, your pastor elders, your shepherds, uh, we love you, and we're, but we're concerned. 
In this election year, especially, we're concerned that the growing political idolatry we see in our culture, on the right and the left, is making its way increasingly into the church. We're concerned that our political allegiances are becoming more fundamental to our identity as Christians than our identity in Christ. We're concerned that the formational catechesis of our politics via social media, via cable news, is shaping us in this time of COVID, especially, more than our minds are being renewed by the word of God in the community of his church. We're concerned that our passion to win elections is outpacing our passion to see souls won to God. We're concerned that the culture's focus on political power is shaping our priorities and our desires in ways that are not godly. We include ourselves in that category, by the way. We're concerned that the political influences in our lives with an outsized influence are creating division in the church. Yes, even in this church, over our approach to biblical primary issues, such as biblical justice, such as racial reconciliation, and others. Race is not a political issue, but we're talking about politics because politics, honestly, right now is a barrier to our talking about race. And so what we're going to do, this is the fun part, we get to look at the scripture. I'm much more excited about talking about the scripture than I am about politics. But uh, let's look at the Gospel of Mark, this beautiful passage, the divinity of our Savior. I mean, his brilliance is just off the charts. Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. Jesus is confronted with a political question. He's asked about taxes. How does Jesus interact with the politics of his day? And what can we learn from it? That's what we're going to be after as we look at this. And then we're going to take some of what we learned from Jesus and how he interacts with the politics of his day. And we're going to apply it to race specifically and, and how we talk about race and racism. So let's read the passage in Mark 12. I want to watch my time. I don't have a good judge of time. I don't do this too often. Um, Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And I do too, by the way. It's Tuesday, so some some context and background with this passage. It's Tuesday, the week before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus has just cleansed the temple and thrown out the money changers. The religious leaders in Jerusalem are threatened by Jesus' growing popularity and obvious authority, And they begin to devise a way to trap Jesus and get him killed, or at the very least, humiliated. 
So let's survey the political scene in Jerusalem at the time. It's not utterly foreign to our environment, very polarized. In this passage, we see two political factions. We see the Herodians. They were loyal to Rome's puppet king of Israel, Herod, and they sought to maintain loyalty to Rome. They were the law and order types. And the Pharisees hated Roman occupation, and they wanted the promised Messiah to overthrow their oppressors and restore Israel. So let's think about this. You have Jesus. He's caught between the revolutionaries, the rioters, and the law and order types. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all. Maybe it does. Literally, the only thing uniting these two political factions is their hate for Jesus. So they've devised the ultimate trap for Jesus. And it's a good trap. They ask him whether it's lawful to pay taxes. Not just any tax, but they're referring to something called the head tax. This was a tax instituted by Rome. It consisted of a denarius, which was a little silver coin. That was about a day's wage, and it was levied on the people of Israel just for being a conquered Roman citizen. Congratulations, you're a conquered Roman citizen. Now give us a denarius. That was the idea. The Jews hated that tax. It was a finger in the eye reminding them of the humiliation of being ruled by Rome. Moreover, the coin bore the inscription, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Caesar claimed to be a god. Not only did it remind the Jews of Roman rule, but it was a reminder each time the tax was collected that they were ruled by a blasphemer claiming a divine mandate. 20 years, 25 years prior, a little extra historical background, after the Romans instituted the head tax, a man named Judas the Galilean, after a similar cleansing of the temple, he did something fairly similar to what Jesus did 25 years prior. He then led an armed revolt when this tax was instituted in response to try to usher in the kingdom of God. What happened to Judas? His revolt was put down, and he was eventually killed by the Romans. The question they're posing to Jesus is meant to get him to pick a political tribe. Jesus, what are your politics? That's what they're asking him. If he tells the people not to pay taxes, he's identifying himself as a political revolutionary in the mode of Judas the Galilean, and the Roman authorities will come come down on him in a heartbeat and identify him as an insurrectionist and put him to death. If he affirms the tax... It will invalidate his claims about ushering in the kingdom of God. Don't you care about the oppression of your people, Jesus? They'd say. Don't you care that these taxes are being used for countless injustices against the people of God? He's trapped. Or is he? How does Jesus interact with the political powder keg of his day? And what can we learn from it? That's what we're here to do. Jesus' brilliance here is undeniable. It's, it's his, his response. Even secular people. I, I listened to a, a secular person. Uh, he's, he's kind of a public figure, but he talked about this passage. And, and actually, he, he wouldn't see Jesus as the Messiah, as, as his Savior. But he points to this, this response as a miracle. <laughs> I just, I love that. Um, but Jesus holds up the coin and he asks, whose image is this? He 
he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Let's drill down on that statement now for the rest of our time. Um, so with this statement, I think Jesus is saying three things to us that we can apply to our conversation tonight about race, racial reconciliation. A, Jesus is refusing to make human politics ultimate. They are not the most important thing to him. Second, Jesus refuses making his home among human political categories. Third, Jesus refuses political withdrawal. Now, that last one's a bit in tension with the first two. So let's drill down on each of these, and, and there'll be an application under each one to our, our conversation tonight. So, so let's talk about Jesus' question. Whose image is on this coin? Whose image is on the silver? It's Caesar's. So then by implication, whose image is on you and me? Ben Bechtel just read that passage to us. God's image is stamped on each one of us. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, give Caesar his worthless silver. Sure, pay your taxes, but give your whole self to God, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Give that to God. Give Caesar his worthless silver. Do you see the brilliant divinity of Jesus in this answer? Is Jesus advocating paying taxes to Caesar? Yes, in the limited sense, but no in the ultimate sense described on the coin. Caesar is not divine. Is Jesus advocating revolution? No, in the narrow sense, but absolutely in the ultimate sense. He's throwing down Caesar's claim to divinity and laying claim to all humanity. A little side note, this is actually the first statement of limited government in human history. Fascinating. All governments to this point made some divine claim And yet, in a sense, he's also saying that this pagan Roman government is legitimate. It should be respected. Fascinating. In this answer, Jesus is refusing to make politics ultimate. And we should too. He has bigger aims in mind. How do we know if we've made politics ultimate? Let's walk through a few diagnostic questions. Some of which may apply to race. Let's think. Are we finding ourselves overcome and brooding with anger about politics all the time? I know I've struggled in this area. Twitter has not been good for my soul in time of COVID. Let me just tell you, it has not been good for my soul. I've had to turn it off at times. We must ask ourselves, if we are constantly angry, have we given to Caesar something that's not his? James tells us the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let's ask another question. What do we say about ourselves when we profess belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's the answer to all the world's problems, but our social media feeds display nothing but U.S. national politics? What does that say about us? Would you rather a lost friend part ways with you because they're angry at your politics? Or would you rather them part ways with you because you love Jesus? 
That's a question I think we all need to ask, ask ourselves. When we look at our social media feeds and see nothing but politics, we should ask ourselves, have we given something to Caesar that's not his? Next question. When a black brother or sister shares the hardships they've experienced that are uniquely attributable to being black in America, do your first thoughts go to politics? When you see tragedy and death in the news, does your mind immediately sift how this affects your favorite political candidate rather than lament and compassion? If so, I'd like to gently suggest that we may be giving to Caesar something that's not his, namely too much too much of our head and heart space. That's not his. Another question. Do you, do you find yourself desiring to justify or ignore things that the scripture plainly opposes? Things like rioting, stealing, the destruction of property. Things like your favorite political candidate's untruthfulness. If so, we may be giving to Caesar something that's not Caesar's. Do you find yourself identifying the main problem with the world and your political enemies? Does it feel like the problem is out there rather than in here? Boy, when I was in the middle of COVID and sick of being inside all the time and looking at Twitter, it felt like the problem was out there. That's what Twitter was training my heart to to feel. We're giving too much to Caesar when we, when we let politics have that influence on our lives. The gospel creates a humble people and destroys superiority and pride. So that's the first item. There's many more ways we could apply this, and we're going to get into the panel in just a second. If you have questions, I'm, if, if I'm saying things that raise questions in your mind and you want to talk back to me, I'm excited to do that in a second. So I know I'm, I'm wading into uncomfortable waters here. <laughs> it's not lost on me. So second, we're moving forward here. Jesus refuses making his home among political human political categories. Notice the question that the factions ask in verse 14. Take a look at that with me. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then they kind of repeat their question and they say, should we pay them or should we not? It's almost like they're saying, Jesus, we want a yes or no question here. There's no wiggle room. You either, you're either for it or you're against it. Um, Jesus refuses this. He doesn't, he's not going to play by the political games. He's not going to make his home among the choices that are presented to him by the political factions of his day. First Peter 2 says the following. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Sojourners and exiles. Friends, we were not meant to feel at home amongst the world's political factions. No political faction this side of heaven will ever perfectly represent the kingdom of God. By way of um, example, a, pr- a prominent Reformed evangelical pastor who I, I've really been helped by in the past um, recently said the following. He spoke with, with our president and said to him, any real true believer is going to be on your side in this election. 
It's quite the statement. <laughs> I hear and see the same sentiment regularly from progressive Christians that I, that I, love, that I, that I love and respect. Christian Friends, this should not be. We're, being, we're giving to Caesar something that is not his here. Telling fellow believers that they must vote for one of the two political major, major political candidates is old school legalism in virtually every de- definition of the word. If you are a real believer, you will vote for X. That is legalism. When was the last time we disagreed with our preferred political party in deference to our greater allegiance to Christ? If we can't think of any, we should be real concerned about that. Let's take this a little further and apply it to our topic at hand. Should Christians support Black Lives Matter? Now we're, we're going to raise the temperature a little bit more. <laughs> let's, let's go there, right? We're a family. We can talk about this stuff. I think in keeping with Jesus' example here, we should re- reject the binary choices laid before us. Of course, of course, we should reject the secular values around sexuality, gender, and identity that are antithetical to the gospel that the BLM movement seeks to advance. That's clear on their website. You can read it. But we must not, we cannot allow politics to capture Black Lives Matter, the statement of value, of anthropology, that black lives are made in the image of God. We cannot let politics take that one. We've got to be the first as Christians to say that black lives matter just as we must be the first to say that unborn lives matter. We must not let the political idolatry of our day pit these things against each other. All human beings are made in the image of God, but sometimes Christians need to be the first to stand up for those lives that our culture values less. Maybe we risk being misunderstood on this point. I think Jesus was pretty okay with being misunderstood if it was a primary issue. In many ways, we can't give to Caesar that which is not his, and the beautiful biblical doctrine of the Imago Dei is not his to take. Political weirdness is okay. It's okay to be politically weird in our culture. By our response to racism and abortion and other first order issues, our neighbors should look at our politics and say, huh, that's weird. Are they liberals or are they conservatives? I can't really put my finger on it. I think the Herodians and the Pharisees had a similar reaction to Christ. Lastly, I think we're we're bringing this train into the station. Jesus refuses political withdrawal. So at this point, you're probably wondering in your head, what's Mike saying here? Is Jesus asking us to be functionally Amish? Is he trying to get us to withdraw and just stay away from dirty politics? I don't think so. He's calling us to political engagement that looks starkly different from the world. Mark Dever has a little book. I left it on my chair. God and Politics. You could read it in one sitting. It was quite good. It's on this. um, It's basically just an exposition of this passage. But there's a quote from that that I wanted to read to you. 
He says, no earthly kingdom will perfectly reflect the character and authority of God. And we see that when authorities clash. That is when it becomes crystal clear. That is what is going on with the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam had authority in the garden, but Adam and Eve didn't use it well. Theirs was the most revolutionary disobedience in all of human history, far more momentous in its consequences than any revolution that has happened since. Everybody else, this is the key part, everybody else has just been moving around the deck chairs on the Titanic. Friends, when we fail to give God what is God's in our political engagement, we play by the world's rules. In a world that favors money, power, success, and fame, if we adopt those same values, we're just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic, as Dever puts it. But Jesus' approach is radically different. Let's look at the text one more time for a clue. Did you ever notice how Jesus has to ask for a denarius? <laughs> this is the king of the universe, and he doesn't have a coin in his pocket. He's, he's poor. He asked for a coin. Mark loves irony. If you, if you like the gospel, Mark's, the gospel of Mark's my, I just, I love the gospel of Mark. He's, he's irony all over the book. Um, and here's Jesus, God himself with flesh on, our king, and he doesn't even have a single coin to his name. And here's this man claiming to be God, Caesar, with all the wealth and power in the world and all the coins in the world. Jesus' priorities are utterly different than Caesar's. And so should ours be. His priority looks, like, looks less like an armed revolt. Remember Judas the Galilean? And more like carrying a cross for our sins. It looks like washing his disciples' feet. It looks like praying for his Roman oppressors even as they nailed him to the cross. And when you put down his revolution, it only spreads it further. Let's engage the issues of our day like racism and injustice with grace and enemy love. A firm commitment to be shaped on these issues first and foremost by the gospel and God's word in the community of his church. And let's avoid political idolatry by treasuring God above all things. That's what he deserves from us. And let's give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. So that's the, the end of our talk. We're going to have our panel come up. If you could just pray with me, and then we'll transition to the panel. So, Father in heaven, we love you. But boy, I'm speaking about myself here too, Lord. It is so hard. It's so easy to be wooed into self-righteousness. It's so easy to be wooed into political idolatry. That's the heartbeat of our culture. And Lord, I feel that pull. I pray for our church, Lord, that we would not be pulled into that vortex. That you would keep our hearts submissive to your word, that you would keep our hearts warm to you, soft-hearted to you, that you would correct our political leanings where they conflict with your word. And Lord, make us be champions of racial justice, of racial reconciliation, of racial harmony. You died to accomplish that, to, to gather a people for yourself from all, all nations to unite them together through your son. We pray that you would make that happen, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Mike, thanks for making us all feel nice, warm, cozy, and comfortable.
<laughs> Nobody laughed at that. I don't think you guys are feeling very comfortable. Um, so, okay, so a, a number of you were on the panel last week, um, but if you could just go ahead and uh, say your name and, um, and uh, yeah, that's, just tell, tell us your name and who you are, a little bit about who you are. Uh, I'm Tony Pitts. Uh, I've been at the church for about two years, um, lead a small group. Great. <laughs> I'm Davis Jans. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Community, and uh, for full-time work, I'm a criminal defense attorney here in the area. Lukeman Harvey, uh, one of the pastor elders here. Carolina Harvey, Lukeman's wife. Mike Grenier, I'm one of the pastor elders here. Okay. Thanks, guys. Well, um, we're going to try our best, like we've said a couple times, to get to your questions. So if you have questions for Mike's talk, please, uh, please text them into the number. And um, we actually have people in the back in the booth working with us, so it'll be on the screen. I can read it, and we can get to it right away. But I don't see one up there. So let's explore something that Mike said in his, in his talk, and let's just dive right into it, okay? So Mike specifically used, in his second point, or was it his first point? I haven't written down. Second point, that Jesus doesn't make home among, his home among human political categories. So Mike said that we as Christa, Jesus risked being misunderstood by his culture. And he used the example of Black Lives Matter as an institution and a phrase. Panel, what do you think about that? <laughs> what do you think about Mike's comments there? Wasting no time getting, to, getting into it. <laughs> It is on <laughs> I, talked, I talked a lot. I'm done talking. I was going to say, I know you guys have thoughts on it. Yeah, I'll set it off. All right, so can you state that question again? Yeah, so I basically want you to respond to what Mike said in his talk. So he said, Jesus doesn't make his home among human political categories. His application of that was to Black Lives Matter and how like Jesus risked being misunderstood by his culture, we as Christians need to take the, the common grace insight that black lives matter and are made in the image of God and embrace that and declare it, risking being misunderstood by the culture. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's certainly a tough one um, because I mean, black lives do matter, um, I think there's a clear distinction between sort of the phrase and the organization, but I think that there is uh, um, in in my opinion, the phrase and the organization have started to merge, which has muddied the water for me and you know obviously I'm speaking for myself and anecdotally, and um, when I talk to my black friends, um, I can only in my head think of one that's, that says, I support this. So we have, so it's, it's not like this universal support for this idea of, so the idea of Black Lives Matter is, it's, it's such an ingenious phrase because you can't argue with it. And but if you actually start to break down what this organization stands for, it, it is just, 
is just everything against the Bible. So that is definitely a, a tricky one because you, you do wade into the situation of, well, are you saying you don't support it? Well, and that, so I mean, you say, well, I don't support black lives. That, and that, you, you know, you're going to get yourself into you know, some trouble, but, but it, it's, it's just a, it's an ingenious organization. I, I mean, they are brilliant people to essentially get us into a corner, very similar to you know, getting us into a situation where it's yes or no. Like there's no middle ground in that. And there is, there is middle ground. Um, but they, in my opinion, they've made it where there is none. So it's almost like you, for, for me personally, I'll go out on the limb. I, I throw the baby out with the bathwater in that particular situation. I, I say, I, I cannot support this. Um, and again, except for one person that I can think of, there there's seems to be, a, at least in the group that I know, there's lack of support for this organization. That could just be the people I know, but anybody else want to take the risk? <laughs> I'll say this, and I think a lot of what Mike had to say drives us to this point, which is valuable. And then, and then Lukeman's comments about this are also valuable. We need to be prepared as Christians um, to to be thinkers, to be not to be afraid of intellectual discussions. And what I mean by that is not to be afraid to look past the noise of our political society. Not to be, uh, we shouldn't be afraid to look to the root of things. And, and ask questions and really seek to understand. And so there, there is a, a challenge that we face that makes it very, very uncomfortable to say, um, I, can't, I can't support Black Lives Matter. What, what does that mean? There are, there are people in our society today that are going to be ostracized for saying that. Um, and so it creates a, a, a challenge for us, but it makes it very hard for us to have real, meaningful discussions and I think that um, and Mike in, in diving into that was helpful. But I do think if, if it's done from a place of love and care, um, whether it's the example of, of Black Lives Matter or a political party, we can have real discussions about the core issues and issues that matter. Um, and especially in church, I don't, I don't think we should be afraid of, of going there. Um, we shouldn't be afraid of challenging each other and asking the deeper questions. I think that's a good point, Davis. I just think, yeah, a, a really helpful question to ask because we've we've loaded terms with so much baggage and and so when when that term that phrase is used it could mean so many different things to so many different people and have so much baggage to it like the most helpful what you were getting at David the most helpful question i think you can ask is just like what do you mean by black lives matter what like when you say you support that what do you mean by that and then that gives you a point to actually jump off and have real dialogue Carolina, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I think it's actually really important to say why Lukeman and, I mean, Lukeman already said it, but I also agree. I don't support the organization Black Lives Matter. Um, and here's a reason why. This is right from their website. So I thought it would be important to read it so that you guys can understand what the conflict is. And this is just one thing. It says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. 
That is unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable to me. Where is a father? Why is that not mentioned? That is not okay. And that's the tearing down of our black and brown brothers and sisters. That the fact that we don't have a lot of father figures or that we don't actually have a father in the household. And so that is just one point as to why we don't support Black Lives Matter. There's many others um, as you read through this, but I thought, you know, it's really, I have so many um, just dear, loving, friends that are Caucasian that support Black Lives Matter, and they support it unknowingly. They don't read. They're not paying attention. They're not, like Davis is saying, doing their own research, um, trying to figure out exactly what the organization actually stands for. And I think if you're going to support something, you should know why you're supporting it. Answer, just like Ben, ben said, being able to answer that question. Uh, so I think if you're researching it and it conflicts with the Bible, because it absolutely does, um, and not in just that point, but in other points too, then do you support Black Lives Matter? Yeah. Well, let's move. Um, looks like we have a, a fresh question uh, from the, the, the audience here. So the question is, so if we shouldn't support BLM as an organization, how can we show support for people of color? So let me say that again. If, so if we shouldn't support Black Lives Matter as an organization, how can we show support for people of color? So I guess the question I would ask back is what type of support do you think people of color need? Um, so I, was, I can't even remember what, what pastor I was listening to, but I was listening to a pastor, and he said, you know, black people want... They need the gospel. They don't need a different version of the gospel. They don't need a hood gospel. They need the gospel. And so if we start to think of black people as just a, a separate group of people that need separate circumstances and, and, and different type of help, then I think we're already approaching it from the wrong direction. Uh, you know, how... how how do I support black people? I, I just, well, I mean, I'm black, so it's a little bit easier. I just talk to black people. <laughs> I, you know, I, I go, you know, I go into, so I find myself often going into bad neighborhoods. I'm a banker and, I, and I'll go into bad neighborhoods. I'm, I'm not as concerned. I, I know I don't stand out as much. Um, so it's probably, it's certainly more, more, uh, you know, it's easier for me. It's more comfortable for me. But I don't do anything different for black people that I do for anybody else. It's, it's still, you know, it's displaying the love of God. It's, it's you know, speaking truth. It's, it's preaching the gospel. It's being consistent uh, with who you are as a person. Uh, black people want consistency in people also. They don't want to be treated differently. They, you know, I, I think of a time where we went to a party up in Perry County and um, it, was, it was a friend. They live in Perry County. And basically, whatever you think of Perry County, this was that party. And we showed up, and it was literally like the music stopped, and everybody turned and looked at us when we got out the car. And I just remember thinking, man, if I didn't love this person, I would not be here right now. But they never treated us any differently once they realized we were supposed to be there. When, so their concern was, were you at the wrong house? 
And once they realized that we were at the right house, they didn't treat us any differently. And I remember thinking to myself, this started off weird, but by the end, like the grandmother was like hugging us. So there was nothing different that happened. They just talked to us like human beings. So I, I guess that's what I would sort of say back is, you know, what is that, I, I guess, treatment that you think we need that's different? I don't know if you have a response for this too, but I, I just, I feel like when I think of support for anyone, like a human, a human being, um, someone that is like you're at church and someone's crying next to you and you don't know them, what would you do? Does it matter that their skin color is a different color than yours? It shouldn't, right? So I feel like, do you treat, like Lukeman was saying, people of color differently? No. How do you make friends? You see something you have in common with someone, no matter interest, whatever, that's how you make friends, right? So just the same way, just be who you normally are. I, I, I wouldn't say treat people that are of color any differently. Just treat us the same. How do you support us? Um, make relationships with us. We're not aliens. Like just because our color, skin color is different doesn't mean we don't love the same way. We aren't passionate the same way. We work hard the same way. We want what everybody else wants. Um, I think it's helpful um, to remember too, that, that we're all, uh, people of color. Um, I had a, a kid in second grade Sunday school explain it to me years ago. Um, ben started out reading the creation account. Uh, part of that creation account is that, that God made us from the dirt. Uh, so, so we're all uh, basically just different shades of dirt. Um, <laughs> and it always stuck with me. I would just say this uh, on that point as well, that I think there's a tremendous temptation in our society today to use social media or or other things as virtue signaling, right? So if our Instagram or our Twitter feed says a certain thing or supports an organization, we see that as an easy way to signal, signal certain virtues without ever going past that. So I would just encourage us all to get past that. You want to support... Um, people being treated fairly and equally, then don't, don't avoid jury duty. Vote, get involved, be educated, find opportunities to volunteer in your community um, and do those things that, that can matter, that we're all supposed to take part of in society and don't simply look for things um, that are virtue signaling or make you feel good if they're on your social media. Just a quick addendum to what Davis said. Like I agree that we should be doing those those public level things, but I think one of the things that I've learned from preparing for this talk too is that the way of Jesus. How, how do you support people of color? How do you work against the injustice we see in our culture? Has much more to do with the counterintuitive things that that Jesus did than the Twitter posts or the um, the Black Lives Matter shirt or the support of the NBA doing this or that. What, you should, what I'm trying to get my mind away from is those things, political engagement's important, but having your neighbors who, are, who are, are of a different race than you into your home for chili or, or caring for them and serving them, 
purposefully and intentionally is going to, it doesn't seem like it's changing the world, but in the way of Jesus, those are the things that change the world. It's, it's, the, it's the counterintuitive things, the things that, we, that don't bring us a lot of virtue, that nobody sees, that I think really, I think we underestimate those things. So, Yeah, and I think just real quick to add as well, I think it's, it's, it is important for us, too, to actually hear people. Um, so if they're, you know, I think, like, like I think some of you have said, like, black people, just like white people, just like Hispanic people, are not a monolith. Um, so listening to people, and, and if, and here's the thing that's hard, I think. If somebody, if, if a black person, if you are white, somebody who is different than you expresses a desire or an opinion that's different than yours, are you going to actually listen to them and try to engage them on that level? So if they're like, if there's a way in which there are there, and, and it very really a lot of people of color in our country today do not feel like they are equal citizens in a very real way. Okay. So is your first response going to be to fire back with all of these statistics or is your first response going to be, what, like, again, what, what does that mean to you? What, like, can you explain that to me? And let's actually have a dialogue about that. And let's actually support at that level instead of just having all of our right facts that we just fire back with. Because we, we see the world in, a, in our own experiences. Like, you can't, we don't have an omnipotent view of the universe. Only God does. Um, and so I think we need to be, be quick to, to listen and slow to speak. Um, okay, so the next question. This is a this is a really good one. I think I think we can all probably relate to this at some level. Um, it says, "How would you encourage somebody who is tired of the political polarization of both sides and tempted to fall into political withdrawal?" <laughs> I can I can take a stab at that. Um, so I'm tired too. I'm tired too. I, I'm. I I I was not kidding by that opening paragraph. I think it's a real problem. I, I think we should really. This this is an ascending issue that the church is going to be confronted with more and more and more. So how do we then engage politically and in, in all that exhaustion? I would say think think try to think like Jesus does in that in that passage. Try try to think. Reorder your priorities with political engagement. So vote, be involved, but think of, think of that process as a, an act of serving your neighbor rather than winning, winning power. Put, put less hope in winning power to change things and more hope in the subversive gospel, the counterintuitive gospel to Make change in unexpected ways. That, that's what I would say. That, that's the glimmer of hope, you know, that, that I see in a pretty bleak, in my opinion. Some, I, I feel like things are pretty bleak politically. I know other people differ with me on that, and that's why we can have this discussion. But I'd say let's be engaged in such a way that's more focused on the subversive impact of the gospel. And so I'll let others chime in. So I, I, I think that the, um, 
the key to not um, withdrawing is to talk to people uh, individually and have conversations with individual people and, and be willing to have those difficult conversations, be willing to, to go down those, those very uncomfortable roads. Um, I, I, you know, it's so tempting to um, get on Facebook and, and Twitter, and, and there's nothing gets solved there. I mean, it's just, it's just mudslinging. And that, it, it's such a small, I think it's such a small minority of people who are, who are actually involved in, in, in that activity. Um, but I think that when you just sit down and actually talk to people, it's it is amazing the conversations that you will have. I, mean, I, I have a coworker who is on the opposite spectrum uh, of politics, uh, religion, uh, social issues. I mean, just polar opposite to me. And her and I have these amazing conversations. Um, often it seems like we don't like each other, and the staff often say, "You guys are constantly arguing." And her and I often look at each other and go, we're not arguing. And even today, she said to me, I love talking to you. And, and it's because I was challenging her on something that she had said. So I, I think just having those conversations, I mean, she's challenged me on some things that I've said. And, and she's moved the, in my needle a little bit. I've moved her needle a little bit. Um, and we still function together. We work well together. So I, I think it's just that personal engagement um, with with individuals will help stop some of that withdrawal? I would say that when, we, when, when we're faced with this, I would say we can interact in our society and, and we have an obligation as Christians to interact in our society in such a way that we are spreading the gospel, but we're also looking for a different way. Because the world today is telling us there are, only, there are only two political options. There's only option A or option B. There is no other choice. And, and I think we can, we can reject that, right? And I think that um, there's things that have been said, and Carolina talked about it, just the example of looking at uh, an organization and saying, okay, what does this organization actually stand for? Helps. And, and I would say this. Part of this goes back to what to what Mike was talking about with are we making politics an idol? Are we making the state an idol um, and putting that above anything else? And the answer to that is no. Many of the issues that we face in our society are reflection are all of them are a reflection of sin. They're a reflection of the breakdown of family. They're reflecting of a reflection of the failure of the church. So if we're worried about political withdrawal, what I'd be encouraging us to do is is to be in in the gospel, to be studying God's word, and then saying, okay, how, how can my activity and interaction with society further the family, further the church, and further the gospel in that way first, and give birth and, and freedom to that? So there are certain political issues that um, people are going to stand for, right? And this may sound legalistic, but I don't, I don't think we as Christians should, advoc- should completely step away from our obligation to be citizens in a society. We're here for a reason. We can impact society. I don't think we should get pushed into false choices, but I also think we need to educate ourselves and say, okay, does, does my vote further freedom for families, for the church, for other things 
and, and what does that look like? And it's okay then to advocate for things. We don't have to not have positions on issues or not take certain positions, um, but we need to be educated in the way that we do that, and we need to do that from a place of truth. Because we could stand up here and point at uh, the Democratic Party and say, well, if you go by the name and the label and you look at the history of the South, that was a party of slavery, and the Republicans were anti-slavery abolitionists. Or you could go in more recent history to the Civil Rights era, era and say it's flipped. And, and so we could, we could do that, but those are, those are false choices, I think. So I think we have to be very, very careful of that and really focus on core issues and issues that we think matter, issues that we think are going to make a difference um, in our community and, and for the church. You know, And there are many people, and I'm one of them, I'll, I'll pick an issue, and maybe it makes me a single-issue voter, but if it's life and there's a way to impact life with my vote when we're talking about pro-life issues, at the end of the day, that's often where I'm going to come down if nothing else. So there are, there are ways, there are things we can look at and say, okay, we as Christians can, can do that. But I would caution you, be very, very careful about how you cast your vote. Be very, very careful and educate yourself on what that candidate really means um, when they're doing anything. But that's, that's what I would say on that. I would say, too, this is, this is more a word of encouragement for myself. And I feel what Mike in his talk said about being on Twitter and how that <laughs> shapes my heart towards politics in the world. But I think this would be a really good season for all of us to read the Sermon on the Mount a lot of times. <laughs> um, I, I think that is, like if you talk about an ultimate political vision for Christians, meaning what will the kingdom of God look like when it comes in its fullness, it's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's what Jesus came to institute there. And I think as much as we are a kingdom that is in exile from the world, um, the way that we engage in politics, I mean, that, that, that's our party platform, in a sense, as Christians, is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so, okay, yeah, this is a good one. Let's go with this one. Okay, so this question says, our current culture is not Rome. So do the things Jesus said about Rome really apply to our current environment? I'm concerned that our current culture suppresses religious beliefs more than Rome. Mike, you want to take a stab at that? Sure. Yeah, I think I think whoever sent, sent in the question is right that that our current culture is not Rome. Um, but I do think that what Jesus is doing there is he's he's interacting with his political environment in such a way that's instructive, right? So there are, there are things that we can draw from that, even though we're not under Roman rule, a government that claims divine right. I would disagree with the second point. I don't think our culture suppresses beliefs more than Rome. You know, I think Rome insisted on the worship of their emperor. You know, you, you, you cross that, you end up on a cross. I, I don't know that that's... Um, I think there, there are religious freedom concerns in our day. I'm not saying that there's not. But, but I, think, I think we can learn a lot about how Jesus interacted with Rome. The, they were... The Israelites were under a lot of injustice. The, the point of the Pharisees, the position of the Pharisees to want to get out from under that, it's not a wrong, it's not a wrong place to be. They wanted to change that injustice. It's just how they went about it and what their priorities were. I think we can glean a lot from that as we think about our own political environment. So that, that was my point. It was not to say that we're the same as Rome, but I appreciate the question. Anyone want to clean up what I... Made a mess of there. 
Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Um, so let's do, let's do, I tell you what, let's do two more, um, and then we'll take a break. Um, so this is one that uh, was asked last time, and I saw it flashed up on the screen earlier, and it got taken down, so it might have been re-asked, so I want to make sure we get to this one. Um, so I'll ask the question, and then maybe we can approach it in two parts, I think would be the best way to go at it. So it says, what do we do about or with our white privilege? Is this something I can do something about as a white male? Um, so I think it'd probably be help. first part of the question is, what, what is our understanding of white privilege? What does that phrase mean? And then second part of the question, what do we do about or with our white privilege? So first, let's try to define what we mean by that, and then go at that question. Part one. Anybody want to take a swing? <laughs> Mike doesn't. He's holding the microphone like this. <laughs> you guys going to make me. I'll take a stab at him. Probably. I think pro- I mean, I probably, like- but I feel like that's fair game for at least the first part, defining it, and then what do we do about it. But you, I think it's fair game for all of us. I can try. So I remember Lukeman's talk last week, you know, I, I, and, and Carolina, your, your discussion with each other, I think is a great example. You know, the white privileges are things that I don't... Uh, this is not going to be a precise definition. I haven't re- researched, you know, the perfect definition. I'm just talking off the top of my head here, so give me some grace. But it's that I don't have to think about the things you talked about last week. To me, that's what white privilege is, is that I don't have to have the discussions you have with your children. I don't have to think about the the eight things that you thought about when you got pulled over by a cop. I'm not thinking about those things. It's the it's the fact that my, I mean, I come from a line of family that, that didn't experience American race-based slavery. That reverberates down through this, the centuries in ways that we're not, we can't perceive. It reverberates down through the generations in ways that, that I don't think we're all really aware of. That, to me, is what white privilege is. And so how do I respond? So what was the second half? Is this something I can do something about as a white male? I think, again, you know, this gets unnecessarily politicized. This is basic. This is, this is Christianity 101. It, it, it's, it's laying down my... It, it's, it's serving my brothers and sisters. It's laying down my interests for the sake of them. It's... it's Getting out of my own head, you know, Jesus came from heaven to earth to serve us. It's, it's walking in his steps and saying, maybe, maybe I don't see everything clearly. Maybe I don't um, see my, my own advantages clearly. It's relying on God's grace to say that the, the things I've achieved aren't necessarily, I worked hard for them, but they ultimately all spring out of God's grace. And so I can't be... I've got to be real suspicious of any time as a Christian I, I say I earned this and there was no privilege involved or no grace involved. I just, to me, I, I think we unnecessarily complicate this because of our political environment. 
And so I, I don't take it to the degree, like I think you can take white privilege to a place that's not helpful in terms of relativizing everything in life to, to privilege and power and saying everything. Whenever I say something, so the talk I gave, a lot of people who talk a lot about white privilege would say, what you said is invalid because you're, you're in a position of power and other people are not. Everything's about power. I think when, when white privilege gets into that sort of relativistic mode, it, it turns into something that is, that's not good. But I think at its core, it's something I, we should be aware of as Caucasians in this culture. So this past week, um, or last week, I think it was last week, I was at the supermarket, and I, I want to share this story because I think it, it, it shares a little bit of what Mike is actually saying, like white, what white privilege is, because there are people out there. I actually had a conversation with someone earlier today that was sharing with me that their family doesn't believe any of this is true and it doesn't exist. Um, and so... I was at the supermarket, and there was um, two little girls who we know really well. Um, they're Caucasian little girls in the supermarket, and I, we saw them, and they were waving to us because we know them, right? We were waving. We are like, hey, how are you guys? And we're talking a little bit. I was like, where's your mama? Oh, well, my mom goes and gets the big stuff, and me and my little sister, she is nine, the older daughter, the older girl is nine, and the younger girl is, I want to say she's six, nine and six. And we get some of the small stuff, and then we meet her at the cash wrap. What, in my mind, I thought, that's really neat. How cool is that? They're going to the store. She's making sure they're being responsible, teaching them. Turn that around, though. If those two little girls were not white, but a different color, brown, black, would we be looking at them differently? Oh, are you lost? Like, would we be responding differently if a parent was doing the same thing? Would we be considering neglect? Right? So I, I, I say that to ask more questions and make, and kind of get you thinking. So maybe you're uncomfortable with what I'm saying, but that is the truth. The truth is, is that if those girls were brown or black, that they, the assumption would be something different. So I think what, what's helpful, what's helpful is don't make that assumption. Don't make the assumption that they need help. You know, you can be friendly, not assume the worst of that family. And I think that's a struggle I have too. I've had people say to me about, a, like, they saw someone at a supermarket, uh, a mom with her kids late at night, like 1130 at night. That's ridiculous. Why would she do that? My first thought actually isn't that she's a terrible mom. It's that she's a single mom working all day. And guess what? At 11 o'clock at night is when she's at the supermarket buying groceries for her family because she doesn't have any other time and she's not leaving her kids at home. She's bringing them with them with her to not neglect them and keep them safe. So I think those are some of the things that um, I think people don't recognize and realize that we experience and we see. So just, I, I don't know how to answer the, the second part of that question. Um, 
That's a tough. That's a tough one because anytime I, I think you say, you know, what can I do? That requires that you give up something of yourself, um, and so are we prepared to give up something of ourselves? Or, or um, but the first part of the of that question, you know, I I think just recognizing that there are people who live different lives um, than others, and so. I know that I live a different life than a lot of black people in, in you know, Harrisburg that might live in Allison Hill. You know, I, I know that. Um, but recognize that there are kids that are growing up in very toxic environments in the hood where the, the school systems are poor, uh, the, the, the support from families are poor, the, you know, they, uh, I, so I, I also sit on the board of the Salvation Army, and one of the things that you get to see and hear are, are stories of people who don't even know how to parent, and so something that seems very sort of normal for me and Carolina, we'll, get, we'll be engaged with somebody who doesn't even realize that you know, maybe feeding your kid Cheetos and orange soda in the morning is not a good idea. Like it's it's not that they are doing it to be bad parents. They don't even know that that is something you probably shouldn't do. They don't even realize that the sugar might hype the kid up. The kid goes to school. The kid can't focus and concentrate. Kid starts falling behind. Like those are things that they that they don't even process. So I think recognizing that those issues actually exist. Um, that there are people who are starting off with a disadvantage simply because of the environment that they are, they're placed in. I mean, it's just, it's just how it is, though, and that, that's a reality of life. And it doesn't mean that they can't succeed or move forward, but they are starting off at a, at a disadvantage. And, and, and then recognizing there are situations where, you know, granted, you know, why is the mom a single mom? Why does she have to do that? Well, my sister's a single mom, but she's a single mom because she was killed, her husband was killed by a drunk driver. But if you saw her outside late at night with her son, that would not process through your head. I'm not saying you, I'm saying the universal you. But someone might say she's a single mom. She decided to sleep around. But the reality was that she was married 10 years, and then somebody decided to drink and get drunk. So not having preconceived notions. Now, I'm not saying excuse certain behaviors, but you have to know that those behaviors were there first to, to make that judgment. Uh, so I, I, I would say just recognizing that there are people who are living different lives under different circumstances who don't have the same knowledge, the same means, uh, the same in, intelligence level to, to do the things that we think might be normal in our society. I, I would just say... Um my gut reaction to that term um, is is that it it makes me uncomfortable um, because it seems to encourage people to not look at other people as individuals. Uh, it seems to promote that monolithic uh, by virtue of your skin color, you are part of this group, and I can identify these characteristics about you. Um, I work with the guys coming out of jail, uh, like in Adams County. They're mostly white. Uh, a lot of them very poor. Most of them have grown up without a father. And to see them as privileged is really difficult. 
uh, just because they have white skin. A lot of them have spent more time locked up in prison than they have out. Um, and so that's, it, it makes me uncomfortable in that sense, um, that we're in one sense saying we should see each other as individuals and then turn around and say, you know, but let's use this monolithic label um, that sort of dehumanizes an entire group of people. It's a really good balancing comment. Thank you, Tony. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, it's helpful to say, like, when we, yeah, when we use these terms, there, there's a, there is like, if, if we agree, and some of us might not agree, there's a helpfulness and a usefulness to them. That's, that is very limited. Whenever you try to make them all-encompassing realities, you do end up inevitably doing that, I think, of saying, like, this is a reality. Where I do think they're helpful, though, is at trying to point to very real historic factors that have happened along racial lines that have, like you said, Lukeman, put certain people ahead of other people, if, the, if that's the right terminology, terminology to use. But, like, you know, you look at something like, um, I don't know, like, like the VA loans coming out of World War II that were denied to black veterans and given to a lot of white veterans that enabled, basically enabled the rise of the white middle class. And that was something that fell along racial black-white divide. So to say white privilege is a term that tries to reckon with that historical reality and say, okay, how do we talk about this? But again, I think your point's well taken, Tony, if that doesn't, certainly doesn't fall out everywhere. So thank you guys. Good discussion. Thank you all for listening and engaging. Let's take um, five, six minutes here, and then we'll come back. Tony will give our um, final uh, talk, and then we'll do some more panel and some more Q&A. Please keep sending in your questions, and we're excited to, to answer them. These are great questions. This is, this is great. So take five. We'll be back. All right. Well, this is uh, yeah the the last part of this panel discussion. Um, again, I'm I'm Tony Pitts. Um, I, I wanted to start out by by saying thanks to Ben, uh, to all the pastor elders um, who who prayerfully decided uh, that this would be an important thing for our church to do. Um, for for the people that that don't know me. Um, and, and are maybe wondering, like, well, why is he on this panel? Um, I have a black mom and a white dad. Uh, I was born in 1964. Uh, probably at the age of five, uh, we lived on 13th Street in Harrisburg on the hill. There was a, a riot that broke out um, around race. And those are some of my earliest memories um, as, as a, a kid with a black mom and a white dad uh, trying to figure out um, why don't black people and white people get along. Fifty years later, I, I feel like I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, I think it's gotten better uh, I think it's gotten significantly better. And then I, I turn on the television. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful as I look out and, and see the people here. I know there are people at home watching. Um, I, I want to thank my wife um, for listening to me talk about this endlessly. 
uh, my mom, she's at home watching. Um, I, I, I've talked to her so often, so intensely, and, and she'll, she'll tell me, you know, you're, you're making my head hurt. Uh, we've, we've cried together, uh, laughed together. Um, so I, I, I really, I just can't say enough. I'm, I'm truly grateful that, that this conversation has taken place. Um, I was asked by Ben to talk about uh, how the church um, is to be this, this counterculture that, that deals with this differently than the world. Um, and, and what I came up with, I mean, we started talking about this, I don't know, a month ago, six weeks ago, something, um, to, to try and distill my thoughts about race relations from the last 50 years down to, like, a few minutes uh, is a daunting uh, man. I, I just, I, I've spent a lot of nights up until two, three in the morning watching videos. Why, what, what, what am I going to say about this? The, the one thing that I said initially when we talked about it after one of the sermon debriefs um, that I will, I will say until I go in the ground with confidence the gospel solves this. Like nothing else, the gospel of Jesus Christ solves this. this. This problem is rooted in man's broken relationship with God. Uh, we, we come up with these systems to try and make ourselves right. And race is one of those systems. If you look up the history of where, where did this lie come from, that some people are better than others. Uh, it has an ugly history. Uh, it is, I believe, a pseudoscience. I don't think there's a lot of controversy about that in the scientific world. That was developed to rationalize chattel slavery, uh, that being a, a slavery where people own other human beings and treat them as property, breed them like animals. This was to rationalize the conscience of a guilty country, um, that, that we developed this system of telling ourselves some people are better than other people. And the gospel solves this problem, not by giving us a different system to believe in, but God gives us himself. Um, As I've, as I've listened to people rationalize their racism over the years, explain to me why white people live here and black people live here and white people go to church here and black people go to church here. And uh, the, the excuse I've heard my whole life has been, it's, it's only natural. You have to understand this is only natural. And the method that white supremacist groups, black supremacist groups have used to recruit vulnerable people looking to belong to something has been to integrate with another race would be unnatural. And sometimes I think that a lot of us have bought into this idea uh, that if, if it feels natural to be around people who are just like us, uh, it must be unnatural to join together with people who are different from us. 
what the Bible teaches is, in fact, that it is not unnatural, but that it is supernatural. And that in order to actually accomplish this, we need the power of God living in us. And that's what the gospel does for us. Uh, It is God himself comes to live inside the believer. And it empowers us to love people supernaturally, not unnaturally. Uh, And that supernatural love is what should be evident when people walk into the doors of a church. When people see our relationships with one another, they should see something supernatural. Um, when, When we look to wrestle against this evil. Uh, I'm going to go to Ephesians 6, uh, chapters 10 through 20 here, and just read what the Word of God says about this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, Each aspect of that, the the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, helmet of salvation, sword of spirit, I think could be a sermon series. Um, but the thing I wanted to focus on is that uh, we, are, we are instructed, exhorted, encouraged not to, not to adopt a system, uh, but a person, to put on the person of Christ. The truth is a person. Uh, we, are, we are to clothe ourselves with the person of Christ as we engage evil in the world and uh, to do it in his strength. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read now 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For we walk in the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts, exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Uh, and so this is, this is where I'm going to wrap up. Um, it, I believe that speaks to how we incorporate our 
other ethnicity, for lack of a better way of saying it, with our Christian ethnicity. Um, and I, I would guess for some of you, uh, thinking of, of your Christianity as an ethnicity might be new. Um, but I, I believe that, that the Bible presents it as such, that this is to be our ethnicity, that when I ask myself, who are my people, that the answer is my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and anything that exalts itself above that, uh, the gospel gives us the power to pull it down. Um, I think oftentimes we, we define humility in this way of like being some groveling worm. Um, you know, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. But I, I, I heard a definition years ago that, that simply said, uh, what God says, I say. That's what real humility is, that we don't think we know better than God. Um, and so on that note, I'll close. If, if you would pray with me and, and we'll bring the panel back up and have a time of questions. Um, Father God, we, we thank you for the good news that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, Lord, you, you give us the ability uh, to love one another supernaturally. You give us a standard of love that is so profound. You call us to measure our love uh, with a willingness to actually lay down our lives for one another. Um, and then you show us how it's done. Um, Lord, we, we, just, we thank you for overcoming our sin, for overcoming death, for overcoming our enemy. And, and we proclaim the victory. And uh, we, just, we just thank you for your love. And, and I just pray that, that the rest of this time would, would glorify you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Tony. So um, let's talk about some of what Tony said. Um, so there was a question there was a question that was asked uh, last time, and I think this, this will be a good way to get us into um, conversation about what Tony just, just shared with us. Um, so, okay, so we talked about the, how the church is to be different with Tony's phrase that he's been saying for, at least I've heard him been saying for at least the last six to eight weeks about living together in the church as different ethnicities as something that's supernatural. Um, so as we attempt to do that, here's, here's the question that was asked last week. Um, how do we as, a, as Christians acknowledge that the church as an institution has been marked by racism, whether overtly or subtly, in its past, but also acknowledge the importance of the church and its role today? So let me, I'll read that one more time. That was a big question. There was a lot in there. How do we as Christians acknowledge that the church as an institution has been marked by racism, whether overtly or subtly in its past, but also acknowledge the importance of the church and its role today? I guess one place to start is just by recognizing the difference between uh, organized religion and, and Christianity and the church and, and being a follower of, of Christ. So I do think it's important that when we engage our culture, we don't simply 
apologize for being Christians or apologize for the gospel on the basis that institutionalized racism of the past uh, is a scar on the church. That's part of it, right? That's part of it. But I think the other critical piece is we we should not ignore the truth of history and we should never try to to ignore the the truth of history and ignore the problems that were there the the segregation that was present in the church um so there's two parts to that um but i do think that part of that can just like when we look at politics we can get caught up in the idea of this is my denomination or this is the name of my church building and that becomes more important to me than than my personal walk with christ my personal accountability and I think that's that's part of it. So I, I think we have to balance that. But I do think we have to listen. We have to listen to our brothers and sisters and be willing to say, okay, how does let me hear what this how this makes you feel and help me understand how to live out a gospel life with you and how to share the gospel with people that have had a different experience in the church than I have. What's the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Read this again. Okay. Uh, how do we as Christians acknowledge that the church as an institution has been marked by racism, whether overtly or subtly in its past, but also acknowledge the importance of the church and its role today? I, I think part of that is acknowledging uh, the history of the church uh, in abolishing slavery, um, that, that uh, there were lots of white Christians uh, who were who were part of the abolishment of slavery. Um, and that often gets left out in the account. Um, I, 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 hundreds of thousands of white people died in the Civil War fighting to free the slaves, um, many of whom I think were motivated by their Christian beliefs. Um, so to, to act as if... Uh, the church has not been involved um, in in trying to solve this problem. I think is uh, ignorant at best. I, I'll just. I, th- I think it's good that we, when we maybe disagree a little bit on the panel, to like do actually do that. I don't think we've really done that yet. I'll push back a little bit in, in one area that I think. I think while we, we, would, we should acknowledge those things, I think as Christians, we of all people, you know, if the church really is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints, then we of all people should be quick to say we haven't done it right. You know, we, that trigger in us should be quick. There shouldn't be a, a defensive mechanism every time someone criticizes the church because we're made up of sinners who've been saved by grace. We, we don't become perfect overnight. And yes, while a lot of white Christians were a part of abolishing slavery, a lot of white Christians were a part of maintaining slavery. And so, like any discussion on this topic, you know, like human nature, you have humans made in the image of God capable of incredible acts of creativity and and amazing things. And then you also have human beings that are fallen and sinful and totally depraved. And we are capable of worse things than we think we are, even as Christians. And so I think 
we have to both, I think, I think we have to acknowledge that if the church had stood up, that the church used a lot of passages in the Bible that twisted them for the purpose of maintaining slavery. Again, the church institutional, not, not the, the church actual, but um, at the same time, a lot of our, a lot of, a lot of the people that I love in reform circles, you know, you think about Jonathan Edwards. There, there's a real Christian that, that, that was blind to the reality of racism, the, the affront that racism is to God. And I, I love the man. I think he's a, he was a Christian. He's taught me amazing things, but we should not paper over that. So um, that, that's all I'm saying is a little pushback maybe to say, let's, let's be quick to say, yeah, we, we've not, we have no barrier to saying that. Because all, we, we rely on God's grace. Our justification is not maintaining this image of the church. Actually, that can work against people coming to know Christ, this appearance that we've had it together forever. So that's just my only counterbalance to that. I don't know if you, if you guys want to respond to that. I'm happy to pass the mic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll say something then. Um, I, I, yeah, I think, you know, I... I do, there is a very real sense in which on the issue of race, I think the church has been behind the world in a very real way. Um, And I think that's just like what Tony just said to us. If you look at the majority of churches in our area, an area that is largely, at least in our pocket of where we are, largely multi-ethnic. And look at the pockets of churches. They are mono-ethnic. And I think that's a problem. (laughs) I'm just, I don't think that's just like, I don't think that's just like what Tony said, natural. I I think that that natural is a problem. I think we need supernatural as a church. And um, and I think what, if you if you think about what what the history of, of our country has been with with slavery and the church's involvement in it, not, not to sweep under the rug the good things that the church has done, but the church's involvement in propping up slavery. What a more beautiful way to display the gospel than for us to stop being segregated. I, I just don't see a way that displays the beauty of the gospel more than that in, in the church in America. It just seems like the, the way in which the gospel puts on flesh and bones in a way that just no other thing in our culture can. And so I think it's really imperative for the church's witness to start to move towards this. And I don't think that can really happen um, unless we actually start being honest about the history of the church more broadly. Um, And like the reason why churches are largely white or black. Um, I I don't want to move on. I want to give you guys a chance to respond to that if you want to. This next question could get more into that if we wanted to move on to that. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question coming. So it says, what would a racially reconciled church look like, look like, act like, and feel like? I love that question. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't think we've seen that. Like, I, I, I don't know. I've never seen it in my life as a, as a believer. You know, and you know what's actually interesting is I think back, and, and I don't mean for this to be an admonishment of the church, but when I think back to my Muslim days in the mosque, it was very diverse. There was a common, um, there was a glue that held everybody together. Uh, there was a common worship, and 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 granted, you can say, well, in Islam, you have the Sunnis and the Shiites, and you're like, you know, but I'm, I'm you know, generally they're not going to the same mosques either. But it was culturally very diverse. Um, but I've never seen that in the church. I don't know what that would actually look like. I've seen, I've seen it close. I think, and there's a church that I've around here that I would say is probably the closest I've ever seen it. And I think there was intention from the leadership and years and years of intention. And that's why they're, I'm not going to promote that church because it's not our church. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a very good church. And, um, and, uh, but at, at living water, <laughs> Say the name. But I I would say that Living Water is probably the closest that I've seen it. And and I've talked to people at Living Water, and we live near Living Water. We know people that go to Living Water. You know, we we know people that work at Living Water and and lead at Living Water. And, um, but talking to people that go to Living Water, you know, something that somebody said to me, a friend of mine that's white that I I love dearly, and he said, he said, "I, I was very uncomfortable with it. And then I realized that my discomfort was that I didn't want to give up something. And then once I gave it up, I was comfortable with it. And so I, I thought that was, I was like, wow, that's interesting. Like, that's really profound to, to like work through that. But I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like to be like completely, to just have a completely racially reconciled church. I don't know. I mean, someday we will know. <laughs> we will. We we will see it someday. Yeah, I'm sure that Mike isn't watching this. But if if Mike ever does watch this, <laughs> Mike Leonzo, the pastor at Living Water, would probably say they are not a racially reconciled church. You know, he'd say we're trying. By God's grace, we're trying, but we're not there. And there are probably a million things he could point to that would say that they're not. I think that's, yeah, go ahead, Karen. I think the one thing that I see, though, that church is doing or is continuing to do well is their leadership looks like their church. That's the truth. Anybody else want to take a stab at this? You can have imagination here. That's encouraged. Uh, I would just say, I would say it, 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 in terms of what it feels like, um, it, would, it would feel like these are my people, like for everybody. Um, and it wouldn't, there wouldn't be like, a, like these are my people, like, and, and all the black people are sitting in one section. And um, that, that just reconciliation would look like, uh, I think people really 
living that out, like where uh, my people wouldn't be limited to just people that share the same amount of melanin in their skin. I, I just have I have to share something on this question. I don't want to take it over as the one who's moderating the panel, but that I so just a per, I grew up going to Living Water. My parents are still members there, and um, I worked there for two years. And uh, I just, so I, I think if, if you all are sensing that there's a passion in my voice about this, that's where it comes from because I've seen it. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I don't think I just. It, there's so in one one sense how I want to answer that question is it's beautiful and it feels like like a home that feels very much at home but that you're also like not super comfortable with um, that that there are some some things that happen that you're like oh I don't agree with that uh, or there are some situations that happen where you're like that makes me very uncomfortable uh, and that's okay and, and there's just there is a there is a joy and a willingness in being uncomfortable and being um, like uh, being a little bit disadvantaged from your own preferences, your own styles, your own likes. Uh, and that's just not, and to be honest, at first, like, like you were saying, Luke, about your friend that goes there, it's not very fun. Um, it hurts, you know? It's not fun. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you get married and you realize you're like, oh, I do all that stuff and I have to change all that stuff. Like, that's not fun. But for the sake of the other person, I'm changing. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that's something that's worth, worth striving for. Um, okay, next question. What is a more important goal for a church? A diversity of background or a diversity of skin color? Yeah, these are, these are not softballs. They're great. What do you think, panel? Why do we have to choose? <laughs> I, I feel like our church actually does have diversity. I love, uh, oh, remind me of his name, the, the, that was here last week on the panel. He uh, works for the police. Lewis. Yeah, Lewis. Um, he, we had a meeting before the meeting, and he was sharing how he felt like, and I completely agreed with him, how our church is diverse. It might not be diverse by skin color, but it's diverse by age. It's diverse by financial position. Um, it's, it's diverse by work. Like, we all have a variety of um, work. Um, so I, I feel like there already is diversity. Why do we have to choose and say, what about color? Like that's, I, I don't, that's tough, you know, to hear when people say that. And I think that's what we struggle with a little bit. When I say we, I think I'm talking about brown and black people. Like, why do we have to separate that? <laughs> I think that covers it. I think it. Are we all? In, I think we could all just say we're in agreement with Carolina and move on. Uh, okay. Oh man, yeah, these are great questions. Um, I'll just say, by the way, it is nine o'clock. So we did this last time. We're going to go a little bit over nine o'clock. If you would like to leave, please feel free to leave. Um, if not, stay with us and engage. This is great. Um, okay. So question is: Should we support slash pursue? Quote, scare quotes, oppressed or culturally devalued people more than other people in different ways? 
I tried to phrase that. Like, <laughs> let me do that one more time. Should we support slash pursue oppressed or culturally devalued people more than other people in different ways? <laughs> I don't. I don't know that. Uh, <laughs> we should make a conscious priority of it, but I will say in my experience, uh, the people who are oppressed and poor and broken are so much more open to the gospel than people who think they have everything going for them. Um, you start talking to them about, uh, salvation and the immediate question is just safe from what? Like, look at my life. Um, so, uh, I would say the the question I've heard or objection to that a lot is this sort of like not every church has to have an inner city ministry or uh, and it's like uh, no but you get to if if you if you want to uh, and the openness to the gospel is just night and day to if you go try and and witness at a country club um, good luck. <laughs> you know? I, I, I will say it this way, and I, I agree with what Tony is saying. I, I would say, yes, but. And, and, and this is what I would say. We should be pursuing all people with the gospel, yes. But I would also say this. I think that fundamentally, we as a church should be willing to ask, where have we failed um, in our churches in that we uh, see that as something that we have to reprioritize, right? Let's ask that question. Where did we go from from serving widows and orphans and and looking at that as a priority? You know, Jesus came um, to seek the lost. And and I think uh, for a lot of different reasons, one of them being that we've just sort of ceded to our government and to other institutions and society, the welfare state and other things, and the church has abandoned that. Like, I, I think we need to be looking internally to the church and saying, where have we failed? What areas of, of life and culture have we stepped away from where we should be serving and helping others and abandon that calling that Jesus gave us? So I would say this should be a challenge to us to say, where where is the church and 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 where is the church and where are opportunities for the church to serve in in being on the front lines and in some respects the church um does that well um but but we should be looking at that so um i i, I think i hear in this question um sort of a reframing of the you know to to draw it back to the topic of my my uh, my talk on politics the reframing of the all lives matter, black lives matter um, sort of debate that you see out there. I would just say in response to this question, I would just want to read the Beatitudes. And what, what do the Beatitudes say? If that's what you mean by this, if that's, if that's what the questioner means by this question, then I, then I say yes, you know. Blessed are the, <laughs> you know, I'll, I could go through them, but... I, I think that the heart of Jesus displayed there is nearness of heart to people in those those categories that he describes there, and, and that should be our heart too. And if that means in different ways, then, then, then I would affirm that. But I, I would say too, on the all lives matter, black lives matter thing, I don't think it's wrong 
you know, it, it's funny. You know, I, I think this is another area where politics has really informed us in ways that aren't helpful because most of the folks saying all lives matter in response to Black Lives Matter would say, would make a special distinction about unborn lives when it matches with their politics. And so I want to say Black Lives Matter and unborn lives matter and reject the political categories and say that we as a church should be on the front lines of valuing lives that, valuing the image of God and certain classes of human beings that our culture does not value. And so we should be on the front lines of that. And, and that means just like you don't send the firemen to the, to the houses that aren't burning, you send the firemen to the ones that are. And so that's why we as a church make a point to, on Sanctity of Life Sunday, talk about unborn lives in a way that we don't talk about other lives because they're in unique peril in our culture. That's why we take time like tonight to talk about uh, the, the fact that not black lives matter the institution, but black lives matter the anthropology, the statement of human value being made in the image of God. We're saying, yes, black lives matter in that sense. And so, so that's what I would say on that. Oh, yeah. All right. This question just says, what, what is your hope for our church? Let's go. <laughs> on this topic? Uh, I am. You're all night. Yeah, I know. Maybe we should, res- let's restrict it to this topic so that we can actually get out of here at a decent time. Because this is so fun to dream about. Because the Lord is good when we dream about these things and it's exciting. Yes, this, yes, topic. this topic. Thank you, Nate. <laughs> So I'm going to just I'm going to share a, a personal example for for what it's worth, um, and maybe it will help uh, frame this. But I, I grew up in in a home with parents. My father grew up in a in a shack behind a, a row house in East LA with nothing, with no father, uh, a mother that worked two jobs, and an older sister who started taking care of him when he was eight years old. Um, and just by virtue of different jobs and things, I, I lived all over the country growing up. But some of my formative years were spent in rural Mississippi. Um, and and a mo- there are two moments in time that, that framed me um, when it comes to these issues in a, in a powerful way. Just my own personal example. One was uh, a man that my dad worked with uh, was a black man. And he had, was invited over to our house and... Um, when my mother invited him inside of our home um, in rural Mississippi to sit down and eat lunch with us, um, he cried because it was the first time he'd ever been invited into um, a white person's house to sit down at a table with them. And I had no concept for that at, at um, seven years old. I had no concept for that. Another thing uh, that I experienced, same situation in a church, um, that was a segregated church in the South was that there were uh, missionaries that came from South Africa and most people in the church didn't realize what their skin color was before they came from South Africa. So there were only three homes of the people in our church where they were welcome to stay while they were there as missionaries. And, and I share that to say, and not to say anything particular about, about my home. There were values that my parents instilled in me about race and other issues that were different. So I didn't 
it didn't carry some of the baggage. And, and I think it's okay to say that. It doesn't mean I, I don't have things I, I need to work through in my own life or anything else. I'm not saying that. But I would say that that, that example that was set for me where, where our home was was a place where all people were welcome, regardless of the background, is an example my parents set for me that I will be forever grateful to them for. And that was because the work Christ had done in them. It wasn't about where they grew up or anything else. It was about the work that Christ had done in them. So I would say that that would be my hope for our church, that Christ would be working in our hearts so that our church and our homes, our dinner tables would be open to all people regardless of their background, um, regardless of their poverty level or anything else, skin color or anything else, but that that would be our church. That would be my hope. This is a, this is a, a big uh, sort of answer to, to prayers for me, just, just that we would be talking about this. Um, I met with Mike Leonzo, the pastor of Living Water, probably... A week before COVID started, we had lunch, um, and and I shared with him uh, that that the lack of racial diversity here was hard for me, um, but that I, I really believe that this is this is where God wanted us, and uh, we prayed about it, and and he's he suggested that uh, why don't you talk to the leadership and 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 see about maybe just like planning a night where you talk to the congregation and, and tell them what it's like for you. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't, uh, I don't want church to be about me. Uh, he's like, well, that's, that's not about, you know, making church about you, but um, this is an important issue. And we, we prayed about it and uh, God heard it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, this is a, a fulfillment of a hope. Um, well, I guess I'll echo Tony in that you know, we've been coming here 18 years. We've been part of community. And this is the first time that issues like this have, well, have been addressed openly. So there have been closed-door conversations that we've had as elders. Uh, there's been individual conversations that have had, but this plat- this is the first time this platform um, has been made available. And, you know, when we think about where we are today, and, you know, 2014 is when Black Lives Matter started, re- I mean, started, and then, you know, you see over the next six years, it's building, it's building, it's building. And, and there was times where I would sit and think, man, are, are they paying attention? Like, do they, see, do they see the wave that's coming? And you could say that about a lot of different things, you know, that we're dealing with you know, socially right now. Where you look at the church and say, "Is the way, is the church paying attention?" But you know, particularly for me, I'm thinking, man, they, they just there's going to be a point where this is this is going to get bad, and I, I think we're at that point. But I do, I as Tony said, like to see this happening is is a huge step. I, you know, I wouldn't say that, at, you know. That I'd say, you know, my journal, it's like, you know, my hope for this church is that we have this conversation. But, you know, deep down inside, I think there, there was always in the back of my head, why is this not being talked about? And, and not in the context of the, the 
diversity of this church, but just in general, why is this not being talked about? I, I said this last week, too. I'm just, I think I'm really um, grateful that people are listening. I think people are open to hear what's going on and asking questions, like really important questions and really hard questions. And that wasn't happening before. And so I know that the unrest that's in our world and the sinfulness and just how hard all of this is, I know it's hard that we're going through it, but I think it's actually bringing some really neat things up. Um, and as a church that we're having this conversation is a really, really awesome thing. Um, and that we're having this conversation and people are listening, like hearing it, you know, okay, not everybody's listening, but that's, you're not going to get that. But that people are is so, it just gives me so much hope. Um, and I'm super thankful and it gives me hope for my kids. You know, it really does like the worries that we have as a family with our kids being, you know, you know, uh, uh, biracial children um, and what they'll see and what they'll experience out in the world. It's just, it gives me hope. So I'm just grateful that you're all here and then people are online listening um, and that you're listening. I'll just keep my um, comment on the question brief. I, you know, I, I'm, I see what, what's my hope for our church as it relates to this topic during this time of COVID I have seen a lot of influences in the culture trying to make a play for our hearts. I'm speaking to myself here, here too. Trying to woo my affections away from Christ in a myriad of different ways during COVID. And my hope for myself, for this church, is that we would, and this is really the heartbeat of what I was trying to say in my talk, is that, that, we would, that our affections would be for Christ and not for, that we would not get, um, that, that we would not play with, with the, the world's values when it comes to change and justice and race, that, that we would base our lives on the word, that we would take action out of love for Christ and gratitude for what he's done for us. That heartbeat, and, and it's been hard in COVID. It has been really, really hard. <laughs> you know, I think, Last elder meeting we were at, you know, we were going around and we were all dealing with different, different levels of hard. And I know all of you are too. And, you know, just to stay centered on Christ through this, that's my hope. This is refreshing. I mean, this, is like, this is like boosting my, my morale big time right now. So I hope it is for you too. Yeah, I'll close and then I think this is a good place to wrap us up. This seems fitting. Um, yeah, I think uh, my hope for our church is that we would be a people that truly let the gospel sink down to us at a gut level and that we would get a sniffer for it and just anything that smells like gospel in our, in our good works, we would run after it, like pursue it with everything we got. And like I said, I, there is not a good work that I think smells more like gospel than racial reconciliation. Um, and, you know, I, Tim Keller uses this great illustration. I've heard him use it before about the way that we, as Christians, 
continually talk about the gospel, but there's a moment for all of us whenever it hits, it lands on us. And he talks about how, like, you know, when you were a kid and you would put change into a, uh, a candy machine or a Coke machine, and you would put in, like, a quarter and two quarters, it was 50 cents, whatever, you put in two quarters, and then it wouldn't come out, and you would, like, shake it, nothing, and you'd walk away. And the next person would come and put 50 cents in, shake it, now they walk away. And then eventually, that person puts the quarter in, and all the coins drop, and you get all this soda. Like, that, that we have this point in our lives when the gospel just drops on us in a way that it hasn't before. And we realize its implications in ways that we haven't before. And I pray that our church would just be one where we realize those implications, where the implications of the gospel for the way that we, we treat other people made in the image of God, where we pursue deeds of justice and mercy for our neighbors here in Harrisburg, where we, as a church, embody the reality of the gospel and the ways that we are quick to defer our preference for the other out of love. Um, I think I got about 10 sermons in me on there, but I'll stop right there. And so, so let's, I would love for us just to thank these panel members and the people that were involved. Can we give them a round of applause? I think you guys, thank you. Thank you for for your contributions. For some of you, thank you for bearing your, your heart and soul before us. That, that's really not lost on me how hard that can be, especially in a, a context where you don't know how people are going to take that. So thank you. That means a lot. Um, and I would say as well, uh, we put together a, um, just if you're interested, uh, like a resource page that we're going to put on our church website related to this. So if you're interested, if there are specific issues where your, your interest was piqued and you're like, I want to know more about that, we tried our best to compile some good resources of sermons, books, talks on all different kinds of subjects related to theology and race and history. Um, so that'll be on our church website. It's a PDF you can download and look into that. Thank you all as well for the ways in which you have contributed to this and how this really was a genuine conversation which is fantastic. I thank you so much for your engagement on this, and I pray that the Lord would use this to stir up beautiful and good things for, for our church and, and for his kingdom and his glory. So would you pray with me as, as we close? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you have shown us the character of your self-giving love in your son, Jesus. Thank you for the ways in which he became uncomfortable, the ways in which he lived, as Mike was saying, as a poor man, of how he came and died for people who scorned him and rejected him without a cent in his pocket and without a shred of clothing on him. And Lord, thank you that you did that all out of love for us. And that now in love, you offer yourself as the risen Savior to us. And everything that you have is ours. May that beauty capture our hearts and may it stir us up to live in ways that are radically different than the world. May it stir us to be people of love and grace when the world is only vitriol and hatred and anger. May it cause us to be people of humility when the world puffs itself up in pride. And Lord, we pray that as you work on us as a people, that we really would see in small ways the kingdom of God show up in ways that we hadn't before and show what it looks like where Jesus is king. So, Lord, until that day when you are king and your reign is fully established, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. All right. Thank you all. Have a good night.